This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. We are looking this morning, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Hear the word of God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is true that uh, there is possibly no passage in the New Testament that has received more attention and scrutiny and discussion in research than this one that is before us today. And Lord, we pray that as we study it, uh, that you would guide our minds into a right understanding of it, appreciation of the truths that it teaches. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Caesarea Philippi was a considerable distance north of the Sea of Galilee, which was already in the northern part of Israel. Caesarea Philippi was Gentile country. The town received its name when it was uh, assigned this name by Philip the Tetrarch. Uh, Philip married uh, uh, the daughter of Herodias, uh, who danced before King Herod and uh, whose mother Herodias had asked for the head of John the Baptist on a, a platter. Well, Philip married uh, the young woman who did the dancing, and uh, he was the one who named the city uh, in honor of Caesar and uh, sort of in honor of himself, giving the name Philippi, presumably because uh, he wanted to distinguish it from the Caesarea, the city that already existed on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but it also didn't hurt by doing so that he got his own name in there with Caesar, and uh, so thus it was Caesarea Philippi. Not to be confused, by the way, with the city of Philippi that Paul wrote uh, the letter of Philippians to. The city was formerly known as Pania. It was a center of Pan worship. Uh, it was also a center of Canaanite Baal worship. And uh, as the name reflects, uh, had no small regard for the emperor 
either. And this was the region, this was the town, the district in which Jesus found himself. You recall, Jesus has been spending considerable time in Gentile lands, and when he did make his way back into Galilee, he was met with the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were antagonistic toward him, and he left, uh, was in the Decapolis region, again, Gentile region, and now has gone up north to Caesarea Philippi. And it's interesting that at this in this Gentile region, very pagan region, that this, this great confession... Uh, upon Peter's lips of Jesus as the Messiah takes place, not in Judea, not even in Galilee, but in a Gentile district. So there they are in Caesarea Philippi, and this conversation takes place. Couldn't have taken very long, and yet in Matthew's Gospel, uh, and actually for the history of the church ever since, this has been one of the significant exchanges that has taken place a high point in the Gospel of Matthew, certainly a turning point in Jesus' ministry in Peter's life and actually in the church ever since. And so as we look at it, it basically tells us two things. We need to understand the significance of Jesus' identity. We also need to understand the significance of the church. And so let's look at this passage. First of all, we need to understand who Jesus is. And that's what the first part of this passage focuses on. Jesus is with his disciples, and he asks them, well, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man, which in its literal sense merely means a human being, but has some messianic overtones without coming right out and being an absolute messianic title. I mean, if Jesus were to say, who, who, who do people say that the Messiah is? That's not much of a question, but he's asking about himself. Um, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? And the disciples, of course, who've had their ear to the ground and have, have perhaps heard people talking in a way that Jesus himself has not. Uh, it's kind of that preacher effect. You know, the preacher shows up and suddenly people get very quiet. Um, well, the disciples may have had the opportunity to hear some of the, uh, the talk that, uh, that Jesus did not. Well, they answer in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist. Well, we've already encountered that, haven't we? Back in chapter 14, uh, where Herod himself, hearing about what was going on with Jesus, thought that Jesus was actually John the Baptist returned from the dead. His guilty conscience was troubling him because of that whole uh, sordid scene with Herodias and asking for John's head on a platter and so forth. And so he was one who, who speculated that perhaps Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead, now more powerful than ever. But apparently he wasn't the only one. Uh, there were other people. Certainly he knew about what had happened to John, who liked John, who appreciated his ministry, then said, well, see, the Lord's brought him back. It's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Now, of course, Jesus and John coexisted. Uh, you know, they they were both together at the same place at Jesus' baptism. But anyway, that was the talk. Uh, there were others who speculating about Jesus, the disciples reported, who thought maybe he was Elijah. Now, the Old Testament had prophesied that Elijah would return uh, before the day of the coming of the Lord. And there were people who said, well, maybe Jesus, with the kind of miracles and the, the teaching, the authority and so forth, was in fact that forerunner. Now, again, you and I know uh, from Jesus' own lips that Elijah had returned 
not literally from the dead, but the one whom the Old Testament prophesied, who would pave the way for the Messiah, had come back. John said, uh, or Jesus said that it was John. John the Baptist was that forerunner preparing the way for the Messiah. Jesus said for those who can accept it, he was the Elijah who was to come. But anyway, people who didn't know that were talking about Jesus saying maybe he's the Elijah. Maybe he's the one who's preparing the way for the Messiah. Others said, well, maybe he's Jeremiah. Now, that's a curious one. Why would they associate Jesus with Jeremiah? Well, maybe it was because they were beginning to pick up on a little bit of the rejection that Jesus was experiencing from the ruling authorities, the religious authorities, just as Jeremiah had. Maybe it was because Jesus' message was critical of the leadership of Israel, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and uh, just as Jeremiah had been critical of the religious apostasy of Judah in his day. Then picking up on that, thinking, well, he sounds a lot like uh, we've heard Jeremiah did. And, and so maybe he's Jeremiah, maybe he's one of the other prophets. That's, that's the kind of talk that was going on. Now, think about it. That's high praise. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, who wouldn't be honored to be mentioned in that class or associated with those great worthies of the Lord. Certainly high praise, certainly a high opinion of Jesus was out there among the crowds. High, yes, but not high enough. Because then Jesus turns around, looks at his disciples and and says to them, okay, that's what people are saying, but... Who do you say that I am? You who have been with me all this time now. You who have heard me teach. You who have seen the the powerful miracles that I have done. You who have had a front row seat to my ministry. Who do you say? And the emphasis is there. But you, who do you say that I am? And it almost seems to imply that there should be a contrast. The people are saying these good things about Jesus. But he asks his disciples, you, you who've been with me, who do you say that I am? Now, it's plural. He's asking the disciples as a group. And that's important. But it's just Peter who answers. Peter replies in verse 16, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. The son of the living God. Significant statement, a significant addition, surrounded as they were by pan worship, Baal worship, Caesar worship. You, Jesus, are the Messiah. You are the one who is to come. You are the one who is the son of the living God. Now, had it just dawned on them that Jesus was the Messiah? No. John 1 tells us that when they first started following Jesus, they said, we found the Messiah. However, they, along with so many people, had all kinds of ideas, misguided, unbiblical ideas about what the Messiah was going to do and who he was going to be. And so for Peter at this point, when Jesus says to them, who who do you say that I am? When, when, When Peter says, you are the Messiah... 
He's saying it with now a higher degree of understanding of what that term means and how Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah. Although, as the passage immediately following this one indicates, they still don't really grasp the fact that Jesus was the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah that Isaiah prophesied. But certainly at this point, they're on their way. And they don't yet have the understanding of Jesus that they would have after the day of Pentecost, for example. But they're coming along. They're learning. They're growing. And when, Jesus, when, when Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah here, there is much more content than there was the day they first started following. Much better understanding of what he was saying when he thought of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And notice Jesus' response to him in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What a contrast with what's come before. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, show us some sign. Come on, produce. We need to see something that's going to convince us that you are who you say you are. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to him and said, but what is, what is, how, does, how does Jesus respond to Peter? He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you didn't come to that conclusion based on a, on a human report. You, you didn't come to that conclusion because you were wowed by some miraculous sign. You came to that conclusion because my father revealed my identity to you. Remember what Jesus says in the Gospel of John? No one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father and those to whom the Father chooses to reveal Him. You see, it wasn't that someone had told Peter, although he had, Andrew had come. His brother came to Peter and said, look, we, we found Messiah. One of, the, one of the most significant introductions in history when Peter met Jesus, Right? But for Peter to confess it in his heartfelt, courageous way was not because of someone who had told him. It was because the Father himself had revealed to Peter who Jesus was. Now, as we look at these verses, we see how critical it is that you and I have a right understanding of Jesus. There are people today who have a high opinion of Jesus. He was a great teacher. He's a great moralist. What an example. Such a, such a godly man. A lot of high opinion, a lot of high praise for Jesus, and yet it falls short of the reality that Jesus is the Christ. He is, the word means Messiah. He is the one who was to come. He is the Savior. And unless we recognize that, and unless we put our faith in Him and follow Him, not for who we'd like to think He is, not just because we have a high opinion of Him, but because He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, we have not yet given Him His due. And it's not enough merely to mentally acknowledge, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God, He's the Savior. People acknowledge that, and yet their lives are no different. Their hearts are not changed. It calls for a full, wholehearted, not only knowledge of Him, but commitment to Him and faith in him. Do you rightly appreciate who Jesus is? He is worthy of your absolute loyalty. He is worth losing everything you have, everything you own, in order that you might gain him, in order that you might keep him. That's why people were willing to burn at the stake, willing to have their heads lopped off, then deny Jesus and are to this day. 
Do you really grip the fact that Jesus is worth dying for, therefore he is worth living for? You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. I think Peter was saying a lot, though he was probably saying more than even he himself fully understood at that point. But it was a significant turning point in Peter's life. In the day when we say to Jesus, you are the Christ, will be a significant turning point in your life as well. But then we go on to see that we need to not only understand the significance of Jesus and his identity, we also need to understand the nature of his church. The church, the doctrine of the church, has fallen on hard times today in many circles and much of evangelicalism. Uh, there are two extremes. There's one extreme that says, well, the church is the, 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 the great end. If you're in the church, you're saved. That's kind of the, uh, maybe with a little bit of overstatement, the Roman Catholic position. On the other hand, much of evangelicalism today swung to the other extreme and just says, well, it's just me and Jesus. You know, the church is quite optional. The church really doesn't matter. Well, the, the biblical truth is, is in the middle. No, we're not saved because we're on the roll of a church. But the church also is not trivial and insignificant in a matter of indifference either. Look at what Jesus goes on to say to Peter. After acknowledging that he, he knows this, he confesses this because the Father has revealed it to him. Jesus, after, after Peter has something significant to say about Jesus, Jesus has something significant to say to and about Peter. Peter, uh, Jesus says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter. And Peter's just said, you are the Christ. And Jesus turns around and says, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, what's going on here? Well, as you probably are aware, there's a play on words here. The name Peter means what? Rock. Now, Jesus probably was speaking Aramaic here. And basically, he said, you are Kepha, Cephas, the Aramaic name for Peter, for rock. You are Kepha, and on this Kepha, I will build my church. There's a pun, and the words are the same. In Greek, the words are similar, but slightly different. You are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, Petra better reflects the Aramaic word, but it's a feminine form. And Matthew's not about to give uh, uh, Peter a feminine <laughs> Name It'd be like calling Henry Henrietta. It just doesn't work. So Petros, masculine, I will build, uh, and on this Petra, rock, I will build my church. But the, the point is, there's a pun on the word rock. You are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, of course, you know, these words have been much debated. Uh, if, 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 Jesus had said, you are Peter, and on you, Peter, I will build my church. It might be more clear. But what is the this referring to? On this rock, well, some options. On Peter himself as a man, on Peter's confession, or is he even referring thirdly to himself, to Jesus? You are Peter, and on this rock, on himself, I will build my church. I mean, the Bible speaks of Jesus being the foundation, cornerstone, as we've read, and he is. Well, what's going on here? Well, I would like to suggest to you something. If there had never been the debates over the Roman Catholic position, the reaction against the 
absolutizing of Peter in the Roman Catholic Church, I think we would have no discussion whatsoever. When Jesus says on this rock, he's talking about Peter. And I think that he is. Now, before you say, whoa, preacher, you're getting uh, you know, into some Roman Catholicism here. No, I'm not. Uh, I, I utterly reject the, the Roman Catholic understanding of Peter as the first pope with this authority, single-handed authority and his successors after him for a number of reasons. First, let me show you, well, we'll talk about that in just a minute as we move on to the keys, but let me give you reasons I, I reject that view. For one thing, Peter died before John. And if Peter's successor then became the the the, uh, the, the overall leader of the church, that would place him in authority even over the Apostle John, who was still living. That wouldn't work. But let's look at Peter. Let's look at him in context, the immediate context. Peter goes from being the rock to being a stumbling block, as we'll look at next time, when he, when he uh, counters Jesus about Jesus' suffering. If you look at Peter... Certainly much honored, but look at him in the rest of the New Testament. You don't see one who seems to have this position of absolute authority over the church. What do you see? Well, you see, uh, for example, in, in, in Acts chapter 8, John and Peter are sent by the church as a whole, as an emissary to the Samaritans. You also see Peter in... Uh, in Acts chapter 11, having to give an account to the church for his uh, interaction with Gentiles. And he's, he's called to account. He has to explain himself. Acts 15, who is the leader of the first general assembly of the church, that great council to decide the question of how to incorporate Gentile believers into the church? Is it Peter? No. Peter spoke there, but the presiding officer was James, the brother of the Lord. And even in the book of Acts itself, Peter begins to fade from the scene, and Paul's ministry really becomes the point of focus. And so even in the scripture itself, you don't see Peter set up, and this certainly says nothing about any kind of descendants of Peter serving as in the position of Pope. So Rejecting that view entirely, I do think it's simplest and, uh, and most consistent to understand Peter, or Jesus here is referring to Peter, however, Peter in a certain light. Upon this rock, upon this courageous confessing Peter, I build my church. How so? Well, we see Peter as the one whom John 21, Jesus instructs, you know, three times as he restores him, after he denies Jesus, three times, feed my sheep. And we see Peter in Acts chapter 2 as the one who preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 Jewish believers are brought into the church. We see Peter in Acts chapter 8 after Philip has gone to the Samaritans and evangelized them. The church sends Peter along with John to go to them and confirm receiving Samaritans into the church and to lay hands on them. And the Holy Spirit comes on the Samaritan believers, the much despised Samaritans. And Peter is the one by whom they come into the church and given the Holy Spirit officially received, so to speak. And then in, uh, of course, Acts chapter 10, Peter's the one who is called by God to go to Cornelius, the Gentile, and his friends and family gathered there. And these Gentiles are received into the church. 
Yes, he's called to account for it, and the church receives his explanation. He says, obviously, God is in this, and we're okay with it. But it was Peter who, who did that. So insofar as Peter was the first to bring in Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost, Samaritan believers to recognize them, Gentile believers into the church, the Lord Jesus was building his church on Peter. But not in an absolute sense. Peter wasn't placed in some primacy over his, his fellow apostles. But he did have the privilege of being the one whom God used to bring those groups in. Jesus was building his church on the foundation of Peter, not as a man alone, but as a confessing, courageous man of God. It's on this rock, this Peter, this man who has the insight and the courage to confess me as Messiah, that I am building my church. And he goes on to say, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Again, much discussion. What does it mean? Well, does it mean hell, hell won't vanquish the church? Well, yes, but gates are not exactly an offensive weapon, are they? Well, does it mean that hell will not withstand the attacks of the church? Well, there's something to that. And we've seen that in Jesus' ministry as, as the gospel goes forward and hell is plundered of those whom it holds captive, so to speak. But if you look at the Old Testament, you see uh, in several places, Psalm 9, for instance, I believe Job 38, where the term gates of death is used and uh, as, as a reference to death itself. And that may well be the reference here. The gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not prevail. Death itself will not prevail over the church. In other words, I think Jesus is saying here, the church will not be extinguished. The church will remain until I return. And that's a comforting thought. doesn't mean the church will always be as much present and as strong in one place all the time. Much of the church growth today is in non-Western countries, in the Southern Hemisphere, South America, Africa, uh, also in Asia. Whereas in Western Europe, we see a remnant holding on in the midst of much darkness and resistance. But Jesus does say the church will not be extinguished. It will remain. Death itself will not overcome it. Hell will not overcome it. But then Jesus says something else in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, we get back to the nature of Peter's ministry, the, the church's ministry. What does it look like? What are the keys? Well, the keys, obviously, reference to admitting or excluding. And I think we've already seen, as we've described Peter's ministry, that Peter had the, the keys to the kingdom as he received the, Gent the Jewish believers at Pentecost, received Samaritan believers, received Gentile believers, opening the doors. But the church continues to have this ministry of receiving and excluding, of binding and loosing. Uh, is that Peter's ministry alone? No. In fact, uh, turn over a page, chapter 18, uh, verse 18, Jesus is speaking to uh, the disciples, and he says, Truly I say to you, plural, you all, say to y'all, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You know, this goes on not just to receiving or excluding people into the church, which is a function of the officers of the church in our day, but even to matters of church discipline, which also can, going to its, to its end, result in the exclusion of someone from the church who persists 
in his sin. And that's the context in Matthew 18, where Jesus refers to that. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul writes to the church in Corinth about this man who was living in unrepentant sin, and he tells the church, exclude him. This is the view, by the way, that's taken in the, uh, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30. It's in the back of your hymnal. You don't need to lift the hymnal to get a copy of the confession. You can download it online. Um, chapter 30 says, The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, has herein appointed a government in the hand of church officers, distinct from the civil magistrate. To these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed, by virtue whereof they have power, respectively, to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by word and censures, and to open it to penitent sinners, by the ministry of the gospel." and by absolution from censures, as occasion shall require. So, by the preaching of the gospel, as we saw in Peter's ministry, to receive people into the church or exclude those who are unbelievers, you see that in Acts, Simon Magus, where Peter excludes him because of his his sin there. Uh, But it's not just Peter. It was the apostles, and today the church, through the office particularly of elder, whom the Lord has given to his church. Now, much discussion over what it means to be bound on earth, bound in heaven, uh, and even the tense of the verb, shall have been bound, and I don't want to get into all of that, but suffice it to say that uh, the church and heaven are connected, that the church does not operate independently of, certainly not counter to, the decrees and the will of God, but is an, and should be an expression of it here on earth. And that as we preach the gospel, we call people to faith in Christ, but the Lord also himself has drawn, or has appointed an eternity past, and will draw people to faith in Christ to respond to the gospel. We'll just leave it as enough to say that there is a connection between God working, or the Lord Jesus working, and the working of his church here in the world. The church is not independent of Christ, but is the expression of his body, of his will, of his work here on earth. After all, when Jesus said to Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And Jesus is building his church uh, from that time up to the present. The Confession says, as the Reformers taught, that apart from the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. That doesn't mean that we're saved by being on the rolls of the church. It means that the gospel comes to us through and is administered by the church as the body of Christ here in the world. And so it is through the church that we come to Christ, through the church that we grow in Christ, through the church that we're held accountable in Christ, through the church that we're protected by the preaching and teaching of God's word as his sheep. And so that's what Jesus is saying here to Peter. A high, a high honor for Peter, and Peter had a great privilege to be the one to preach the gospel and bring in Jewish believers, Samaritan believers to confirm them, and, uh, and Gentile believers. But Peter wasn't placed in some abiding position of authority over his brothers, and certainly his successors weren't named to be the bishop of Rome and head of the church. There's nothing of that here or in the rest of the scriptures. But Peter was honored to have this place of maybe first among equals in the honors that the Lord Jesus accorded him. And yet it's the Lord Jesus, not Peter, who is the head of his church. And just as quickly said, Jesus says to his disciples, now don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. Huh? 
Jesus, again, wants people to come to faith based on the testimony of his teaching, of his miracles, and the revelation of his Father. Just as Peter was growing in his faith in Christ by those ordinary means, not demanding a sign, but through the evidence Jesus has already given and through the testimony of his heavenly Father, Jesus says, don't go out telling people I'm the Messiah. I don't want to raise wrong expectations. I don't want to inflame all these misunderstandings. I want to go on preaching the gospel of the kingdom, doing the miracles and signs of the kingdom, the evidence of the kingdom they've been doing, and rely on the heavenly Father to bring to faith in me those whom he Will. A lot of discussion, as I say, has taken place over this passage, a lot of disagreement, a lot more we could go into regarding the inter- interpretation of these verses. But one thing is clear Jesus asks you to answer the question, Who do you say that I am? And Peter makes it plain that ultimately there is one right answer and one only You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that entails our absolute faith in him and our total submission to his lordship in the context of his church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the clear truth that is here, despite, Father, those things we might discuss and differ over as believers and scholars have over the years. But, Father, what is clear here is absolutely clear, and that is the supremacy not of Peter, but of Christ. And Father, may we confess with our lips, as Peter did, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts, and be saved. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.